The Naive Theater of the Air presents Rewired by Matthew Broyles. Episode 5, Endurance. Dr. Waylon Lilly didn't like rising early, but he was no longer any good at sleeping. This morning was no exception, and he resigned himself to a sunrise at his kitchen table, hot coffee in hand to ward off the chill. If the house and its big bay windows had been built in some other place, the view might be awe-inspiring. Swiss mountains, Parisian avenues, wooded glades. As it was, the chief feature of his scenic vista tended to be cattle. Not particularly well-fed ones, either. Eoline was scrubby, the ground mostly clay and rock, supporting only that which, through historical and biological circumstance, could not survive elsewhere. In other words, himself. After the coffee had sufficiently warmed his veins, he put down the cup and opened a pack of joints. The Bible beaters may not have liked it, but the Republic's population would never have reached critical mass without the lure of a totally unregulated drug market. Franco Baltiera, his former dorm roommate at the University of Texas, had put his scientific training towards that end of biology, and was now Lubbock's biggest billionaire. He was also one of the few people in the world who knew Lily was still alive. On a regular basis, Arshad received large wizard people cartons at the lab, knowing who they were really for. Lily lit one up now and took a slow hit. When they had been at school, such things were for recreational purposes only. One had to be clean and sharp in the lab and save the altered states for the weekend. But had it not been for a particular mushroom trip, one night in the hill country, when he was supposed to be working on his dissertation, it was entirely possible he would never have connected the pieces that eventually brought about rewiring. In the dark that night on Enchanted Rock, it was as if he could actually see them, floating in the air, dislocated from one another through accidents of evolution. Little processors consumed with this task or the other, each looking at different bits of the elephant, but separately, communicating through unrelated synapse tunnels, so thick that the messages weren't fully connecting to show them what they were seeing. And on their way through, the thoughts were being filtered through animal reflexes, reduplication urges, shadows of long-dead predators. Even stoned, he had the compelling urge to write it down. Though it was not his specialty, total psychology was a hot topic among his fellow students, and it had evidently been on his mind just then. In the glow of the stars, he saw its components taken apart, found the back channels laid bare. Somehow he had momentarily rewired himself. The fact that he was able to replicate it in the lab both surprised and encouraged him. From that moment on, he had seldom been completely sober at work. The jury was still out over whether or not that was a good thing. Lily scratched his disheveled gray goatee. He heard wind twisting anarchically in the corner of an eave somewhere along his roof. A nasty front was blowing in from the northwest, scattering the dry earth inexorably towards the Gulf of Mexico, hundreds of miles southeast. Much of the grit blowing through came from the wired world out west, where many of his colleagues had fled during the reclamation. He'd had nowhere to hide. 
Tax records showed that a distant relative of his had once owned this land back in the late 19th century. His father brought him out to the cemetery here when he was young to spend a moment with his heritage. Even back then, young Wayland thought that this would be a good place to disappear. It was the first place that occurred to him when Colonel Haley had offered an evacuation from Austin. And here he was, disappearing. His problems, however, weren't. A Rubicon remained uncrossed. The Vorn. It blindsided him, that first one. The battle for the minds of humanity, for free will, had consumed his twenties and thirties. It was a political and moral crusade, clear for anyone who wished to see it. Those who still could, back before the total psychology net snapped shut. Much to his chagrin, the proliferation of rewiring among the oligarchs was the turning point, allowing them to open the life-casting floodgates without incurring damage themselves. And of course that's how Nightheart had gotten their funding. Gabriella, who could sell Christmas cards in June, who chose a path he could not follow. He waved her memory away with the cloud of pot smoke. But she had been there for that, the first one. Who knew how many sightings there had actually been prior to the patient that came to them? Because who would risk reporting such a thing? Hearing the description, the team's first assumption was that it was a pre-existing condition. Thousands had been rewired by that point with no significant side effects. Yet they kept cropping up as the months went by. Too similar. Too widely spread geographically. Lily had even tried to make himself see them. Arshad had spent long hours stimulating various nodes with implements of their construction, to no avail. Whatever these people were seeing, it could only be seen by these people. People like Sergeant Lars Selden. It unnerved him, and he was determined to get to the bottom of it. But it was only in the past year, with the development of the ocular duplication array, that the rug was well and truly pulled out from under him. Now he could see them if only on a screen. Their appearance and behavior were consistent, with minor variables. However, the same could be said about rewired patients. Lily was torn between two equally outrageous ideas, either that he had discovered a new species, or that he had created them. Finding the truth of that matter grew ever more pressing. The new Selden report came on the heels of the Clifton incident, now only a month past. Lily took another pull from his joint. More blood on his hands there. Clifton was a refugee from Haiti, hailing from a small rewired community that was the product of Dr. Diaz's occasional missionary tendencies. The fact that Clifton made it all the way through the wired portion of Texas from the coast to the line was miraculous enough that Lily greeted him personally upon his arrival, despite the reports of his death. Haley hadn't cared for that decision much, or most of his decisions. Clifton had a strong will. Driven. Mere moments after attaching the ODA to Clifton, the apparition had resolved crisply. Though ostensibly the same one Arshad normally had on his shoulder during these sightings, this form was notably different. More demonstrative. It seemed to have a distinct personality the others lacked. Clifton's lobes burned brightly on the scanner, and Lily became obsessed. Long days of experimentation followed. Findings sent out into the field. Suggestions returned. Nothing was out of bounds. Clifton convinced himself he was a prophet of some kind, meant to bring humans and Vorn together after centuries of separation. He pushed Lily to go further, dig deeper, to see the truth as Clifton saw it. And dig he did. Lily discovered the dampening field in reverse. 
One day he hit upon a particular pattern of lobe stimulation that caused Clifton's Vorn to leap off Arshad's shoulder and approach Clifton, the first time it had ever done so. If Lily were honest, he knew he panicked. The spindly gray creature, advancing on his patient, thin teeth bared, empty eye holes piercing through the screen staring at him. At him, logic be damned. Lily flipped the switch 180 degrees, blocking stimulation to that pattern of nodes. Abruptly, the thing vanished from the monitor. Clifton was inconsolable. For him, it had been a religious experience. Enlightenment. A touch of a god. He begged Lily to repeat whatever he had just done. Lying, Lily said he hadn't done anything unusual. He was enthralled to the alluring possibility that the glitch might at last be fixed. He copied the pattern onto a small field wave generator and put it on a lanyard around Clifton's neck that night as he slept. Days came and went with no sign of the Vorn on their scanners. Clifton was in turmoil. What had he done to displease his spectral friends? Again and again he pleaded with Lily to bring them back. By then he suspected some technical witchcraft, although of course he didn't notice the cause hanging from his neck. The simple pattern for object masking was a byproduct of earlier research, and Lily grafted that onto the amulet for safety's sake. It was for Clifton's own good. He was being healed, being freed. Not two days later they found him, dangling from an IV tube, tied to a sturdy line of pipe in the bathroom ceiling. The amulet remained untouched, there on his lifeless chest. A week went by before Lily could bring himself, and later Arshad, to return to work. This was not the problem he had set out to solve. All he wanted was to let people think for themselves, free of the perverse brainwashing of the corporations. He was not in the business of playing God. And yet here was another person, dead by his meddling hand. Lily stubbed out the remains of the joint in a cast-iron ashtray. Selden was coming, with a trail of blood behind him. A memory from an old movie returned again. The monster, in torment, bringing ruin to his creator. It was only fair. It was the wind that woke her. The trees, insufficiently trimmed, slashed in the gale upon the wall of her townhouse. The faint but persistent glow of Dupont's circle against the low clouds gave an eerie luminescence to the mahogany armoire, and the ghost of that glow lit her varnished headboard. Sleep, that elusive will-o'-the-wisp. She always needed more of it, but her conscious mind, once awakened, was loath to release custody of her faculties to those little slices of death that keep the living sane. Dr. Neidhart fought it for a while, vaguely hoping her thoughts could get lost in the warmth of the duvet. But she knew when she was beaten. Willfully, she turned the clock to the wall before rising. She didn't even want to know. Donning her cashmere robe and slippers, she stepped out into the study and lit the gas fireplace, settling into the chase lounge. As a girl in Des Moines, she had dreamed of a home like this. Leather chairs, neatly arranged bookcases, dark wood paneling. A life more tidy than that with which she had been raised. She remembered well the summer of her tenth year, their trip to see Grandpa Andreas in Stuttgart, at his modest but well-appointed townhouse. That was when the veil got lifted. She worked it out for herself. 
plain as it was for everyone to see. She wasn't supposed to grow up inside a trailer in Iowa. Her father had married badly, gotten roped in by a sweet farm girl smile which masked a shrill OCD nightmare. Her parents were failures, ne'er-do-wells. Their foibles had gotten them stuck in a fold of America's back fat. She didn't know exactly how or care to. She had already written them off. Grandpa Andreas hadn't lived to see another summer, but his ghost visited her nightly. A specter of a life less shabby was her Jacob Marley, rattling its chains during every exam and science fair. It followed her to Austin, carrying her scholarships beside her in its dusty cardboard suitcase, which could crumble at any moment, leaving her stuck in a little box all made of ticky-tacky out on the plains. In Washington, at last, she had made the apparition manifest. Among her late father's effects, she found a photograph of her grandfather suitable for framing above the mantelpiece. In the dim reflection from the firelight, he looked down approvingly at her. Yes, my darling girl, that's more like it. The wind howled down 19th Street, further enraging the trees outside her window. It reminded her of tornado season back in the Midwest. She glanced at the report cover on her desk and cast her gaze vaguely toward the west. He was out there somewhere, Waylon. In the wake of the reclamation, they'd tried to tell her he was dead. Bullshit, she'd thought. Hell and all its demons may have descended upon that place as civilization crashed to an end around him. But she knew that he had cast the spell which drew them. Though he would surely deny it, some part of him feasted on the maelstrom. Unbeknownst even to himself, he was on a quest for an all-encompassing entropy that even death, when in time it finally came, would not end. Lightning flickered across Grandpa Andreas's face as she assessed his expression through the glass. With a knowing nod to herself, she rose and took her seat at the desk. Switching on the data display, she checked her cue. Most of the arrivals from the Bureau could be shunted off onto her assistant, Anton, who could dig through them for whatever minor nuggets they might contain. But the doctor's eye caught one from Javier, and that was something altogether different. He knew what she was looking for better than anyone else in the Bureau. Javier Kalana understood it fundamentally, which most laymen did not. But of course, he was not a layman. Master's degree in applied total psychology. When his doctoral research on the Chicago co-op had led to the discovery that it was a breakaway rewired sect in the making, the Bureau had been able to shut it down. He'd been an agent ever since and the only one whose calls Gabriella would take without screening. Engaging the decrypt, she watched as a detailed congruency analysis unfolded on her screen. Eric Wright and Harold Cheney, two subcontracted Staten Island ferry employees, had for the first time in their lives taken a train out of town. Their tickets were for Chicago, but they had gotten off the train in Buffalo. Adwire trafficking logs followed them to Five Flags Park, where they had stayed for several hours with normal input-output flow. Wright and Cheney had then headed south. Then, abruptly, the wires had ceased communication on the Buffalo Skyway, right over the water. Or under it, thought Gabriella. She brought up the assorted camera captures. Javier had annotated two videos in particular, one from the lounge car on the train the night before, and another from the park in Buffalo. The doctor watched them, nodding, smiling slightly. She sent Anton a note to arrange a meeting with the National Security Advisor at the earliest convenience. The glow emanating from the window blinds was slowly growing brighter than the man-made light pollution of DuPont Circle. And Dr. Neidhart knew the morning was upon her. 
Genius never sleeps, Gabriella. Waylon had told her that, and had likely regretted it every day since. He still couldn't find it. He couldn't tell how long he'd been looking this time. This time, implying that there had been times before this. It seemed vitally important that he find it. The room. He knew where it was. But every time, no matter how often he made the correct turns, climbed the right staircases, opened the right doors, somehow he missed it. And there was someone else looking for it. Someone who was not him. But he couldn't be entirely sure who he himself was. He sought a mirror and found one set into a dusty bookshelf. A face stared back. Was this his face? It wasn't not his face. Something moved just at the edge of his vision. He turned, finding the large old room empty, but for himself. It was obviously a dream. But whose? A familiar doorway caught his eye, and his search for the lost room resumed. As a lifelong Brooklyn resident, Harry knew one thing. No matter how bad the winter got in the city, it was always worse in Buffalo. He was, however, quite unprepared for how much worse. The Nor'easter hadn't been polite enough to wait until they'd found the signal point in Five Flags Park. A buried telegraph line strung to the safe house through the sewers. Very steampunk, Harry thought. The frozen wind that whistled up Harry's pants while they waited for a response seemed as if it could kill off all capability of an erection for at least a week. Barely a car on the street, and nary a pedestrian around to see them. Even the ad boards had folded into their storm shells. When the reply came, they were instructed to deposit their wires in a tree stump near the park bench, and walk, walk, north until they saw the sign for the tub man, which sadly was not a bar, but a bathtub renovation outfit fronting a VEF safe house. Harry and his father were told their wires would be disposed of safely. The person who told them this was not remotely happy about it. Hattie Tubman, proprietress of the joint, made no bones about the fact that their arrival was a substantial pain in her ass. Her husband, Ramsey, was deputized to deal with the interlopers. Gonna get off that train when they watching, showing right where the signal box is. Don't think you're gonna be here long. We appreciate your hospitality. We wouldn't have come if it weren't important. Our orders come from the highest level. Highest level gonna have to find you new wires. We spent a long time building them up out here. Don't have none to spare. We were told the safe house is safe, not stupid. You know how much wires cost? You know what? In the morning, I'm gonna take you fishing. I don't know if you've seen the weather reports. You got no wires. You stay, you're gonna bring us all down. Harry and Lars nodded, reluctantly. Even if they hadn't really been found out on the train, their early exit would call attention to them. If the net tightened, Buffalo wasn't big enough to hide in. You go to free Detroit. Last place they're gonna look for you. Lake Erie? We're going across a gigantic frozen lake in a snowstorm? How the hell are we supposed to know where we're going? You don't. But I do. Only the best ice fishing tours for the big Vaughn killer, I guess. 
Come morning, I'll take you out of ways. Catch a breaker by night. Lars nodded. He'd heard the VEF had access to some registered icebreakers. It wouldn't be a comfortable trip, but they would be off the ad grid till they reached free Detroit. Then, the real adventure would begin. The votes were in. Horowitz 47%, Weiss 51%. Dr. James Barrett could drink to that. Thumbing his data display off, he sipped at a dry martini and allowed himself a smile in the dim light of his immense office. As chairman of the council, Horowitz had been a thorn in Barrett's side since the Republic's inception. Suspicious of anyone outside his trusted Hasid circle, he had stifled Barrett's independence all through the years. For his part, Barrett had to admit the old man was no fool. With Horowitz's eyes and ears everywhere, the doctor had to work twice as hard to bypass him. But no more. Old Pincus looked as sick as he was, and the voters could see it, especially when put on stage alongside David Weiss, a hero of the secession. Captain Weiss's firm jaw and thunderous oration easily eclipsed the wispy philosophical meanderings of the elderly chairman, whose days were surely numbered now at 87 years old. The new chairman-elect certainly embodied the will to power, having served prominently on the council for a decade. But he was also a wide-eyed worshipper of Barrett, who had, not coincidentally, shepherded the young man through his early political career and made sure Weiss had first access to new scientific data coming from Barrett's lab. At least the data the doctor wanted him to see. Weiss believed that rewiring was only the first step in freeing the human race, a sentiment Barrett could get behind, up to a point. The Republic of Brooklyn did not waste time when it came to politics. The new chairman would be sworn in within the week, and Horowitz would be put out to pasture. Then, thought Barrett, the real revolution could begin. From his pocket, Barrett produced a small tablet. He would only need it for another few days, and was briefly tempted to send his message through the normal rewired net. But if the years had taught him anything, it was the value of patience. Encoding for DOV net, he typed a brief missive to the speaker of the disciples. The link, so long severed, shall be healed. Rejoice and think of the days to come. Barrett had been thinking of those days for quite some time now. Indeed, rewiring had only been the first step. Now Lily's triumph would become Barrett's gateway. Only one roadblock remained. The pieces were moving into place. Not long now. she was ready. Seizing the back of Javier's head, she firmly but gently raised his mouth from between her legs. He understood and turned over. She saw that he too was ready, and with a flourish for the mirror, she lowered herself to take him inside. Gabriella loved to watch herself fuck. The view was almost better than the act itself. She knew the face in the mirror as it normally was, day to day, cool and collected, every muscle in its proper place. Now she could watch that control collapse, grow weaker with every slow thrust. Her eyes, now capable of surprise, 
of sudden emotional rushes, which forced them wider against her will. And yet it was her will. It was she who had seduced Javier. She held the power. She called the shots. Gabriella Neidhart, the biopsychological security advisor to the president. But then there was this woman, writhing and panting like an animal as Javier seized her hips, guiding her on her inexorable journey to complete loss of control. She never faced him at this point in the game. This was not for him. This was between Gabriella and herself. Their hungry brown eyes locked on one another in the dim light. It never worked when she was alone, though she had tried. The supremacy over someone else inside her was what brought that other woman out. She was both in love with and terrified of her. And here she came. In waves, slowly, steadily, command over her body's desires was lost. She watched herself surrender to that woman, who wanted this now, would do anything to get it, anything in the world. Gabriella was tempted to fight her, make her wait. The thought only made her cry out, speeding up her relentless rocking on Javier, who grabbed her hips tighter as she ground herself into his flesh. She watched the woman take what she wanted. There she was now in the mirror. Not the same face, not by a million miles. Everything open, ready to receive what was coming with no reservations, no regrets. Lips snarling, eyes bulging, throat hoarse with cries of rapture. Mine, Gabriella. You are mine. Never forget. The wave overwhelmed her until at last she gripped the bedpost for dear life and closed her eyes, accepting the wave of oblivion as it rolled over her. Enslaved to its thrall, she could scarcely fathom that anything else existed in the universe. She was the birth of stars and their death. No longer a simple being, but a force of nature, too powerful to be given a name. The power basked in itself for a brief eternity. Slowly, it became aware of something which still moved within, something she did not fully control. The man. Opening her eyes, she leveled a gaze and a knowing smile at the woman in the mirror, the goddess of love, whose eyes narrowed as she gripped the helpless male inside her, rolling him ferociously again and again into ecstasy as he came at last. He, too, belonged to her. She collapsed then at the edge of the bed, eyes locked on the female creature in the mirror. Javier, spent, would leave in good time, but as long as he was quiet, he could spend a few moments recovering in the background. Her gaze grew dreamy. The memories, always the memories. She let them flow. It didn't matter anymore. Gabriella knew with whom she had just made love. By any objective measure, yes, Javier was a superior lover, but the touch was one she felt through him, not from him. Once, she believed it had come from Waylon, for it was by his hand that she discovered the gateway to this place. She allowed the memory, remembered the taste of him. Something, someone inside her breaking free to master him as it had mastered Gabriella. She had watched him leave himself then, had made him do it. There was no choice in the matter, and probing the depths of humanity, they had awakened its power within them and ultimately over them. At first it had been the lure of the forbidden, something which now lay beyond her reach. With every taboo broken, all the sensations Javier created within Gabriella would be mere echoes without her, the nameless one. She was growing stronger again, every time. This frightened Gabriella, which, perversely, 
only made her more intent on making the woman appear again, as she did now, watching her. How far can it go, she had asked him then. If she were honest, it was that which had finally made her leave. Wayland's refusal to follow the question through. The discovery had frightened them both, but only one of them felt the fear as a challenge. Thinking about it, she stirred again below. She watched in delighted shock as the woman's hips and thighs slowly, relentlessly enveloped Javier's head, which he would never, ever get back from her. I know you're here. I will find you, and you will die. God damn it was cold. Harry had once seen a documentary about Shackleton the explorer who set out to traverse the Antarctic continent from sea to sea, at the outbreak of World War I, no less. His ship, the Endurance, became frozen fast in an ice floe. Nine months passed, an Antarctic winter, and then his boat sank, marooning the crew on the ice. Four months later, they managed to set foot on Elephant Island, a frozen stump of solid ground between Antarctica and the tip of South America. Shackleton's concern for his men was such that he gave his mittens to the expedition's photographer, who had lost his during the journey. As a result, Shackleton suffered frostbitten fingers. Ernest Shackleton, Harry decided, was an idiot. Harry, his father, and this new tubman had only been out on the frozen surface of Lake Erie for two hours, and as the wind howled around them in the blinding snow, Harry had resigned himself to the fact that he was going to die. Thinking it over, as he had since their journey from Brooklyn had begun, he ranked this death as somewhere near the middle of the spectrum he had drawn up in his mind. The mental graph rated the likely types of death they could encounter, ranging from stupid clumsiness to violent cataclysm. This mode of travel was stupid, yes, but perhaps not as stupid as continuing on land without wires. Violence, of course, was harder to guess at. They were unlikely to find breaking ice underfoot here, but it was ice after all. An injury could come swiftly and painfully. So as potential deaths went, this offered the greatest range of possibilities so far. The three men were tied together, with Ramsey in the front. Yet another tubman. How many could there be, Harry wondered. This one was weathered, his unruly beard streaked with gray. Not that anyone's face was exposed at the moment. Weatherproof clothing had improved since Shackleton's day. And Harry's get-up seemed more fit for moon exploration than for ice fishing. The elements around him were kept at bay, but only just. It was still fucking cold. Ramsey had talked some in the van on their way to the lake. Their faith was strong, a big part of their decision to rewire. Babylon is Babylon. Only the name changes. Harry wondered what Ramsey guessed about his dad. Being part of the VEF's Tubman network, from their experience so far, seemed to mean plausible deniability. But it also meant devotion. And that had to come with a desire to know just exactly what was being fought for. In the abstract, they were bringing down Babylon just by existing right under its nose. But Hattie had guessed. They knew they were abetting a killer. It rattled Harry sometimes. 
He saw his father mostly as a pain in the ass. Others seemed to sense something darker. A quality Harry saw as well, but which was only a piece that fit into everything else he knew about his old man's insecurities and foibles. No one saw the grieving husband, the frustrated hero-in-waiting, denied glory time and time again, the lost son of the doomed dead. Getting information about his father's parents was next to impossible. He knew from his mother that they had died during the secession, and that she hadn't known them well. Lars had been estranged from his father ever since he joined the military, for reasons which were unclear to Harry. Lars had apparently kept in touch with his mother under her husband's radar, through anonymous email. Now Grandma Selden's father, that was someone Harry knew about. Major Summerlin's picture dominated the mantelpiece in their home all through Harry's childhood. Chin out, eyes piercing through the frame. When Harry screwed up, it was that picture who judged him. You think the Major would let that slide, son? The answer, of course, was no. Nothing slid. Nothing Harry could do would ever survive the Major's scrutiny from beyond the grave. Harry hated the son of a bitch, and he'd never even met him. Harry was much more interested in the man who Lars Selden had replaced as the paternal ideal in his life. After all, it was Grandpa Selden who had gotten his son rewired. It was he who had died in the secession, along with his wife. Where was Grandpa Selden's picture on the hearth? Heaving himself forward another impossible step behind Ramsay and the old man, Harry reflected that very soon, there would likely be no one left to ponder such a question. If not for technology, the cluster of fish houses out on the lake would never have been spotted in the storm. Ramsay's navcom steered them towards a solid-looking structure, about ten feet by sixteen. Once Harry caught sight of the building, the walk towards it seemed interminable. Shelter was all he craved. Something, anything, between him and the banshee wail of the wind. At long last they made it. As Ramsay slammed the door shut behind them, Harry could scarcely believe the relative silence. Certainly the storm was far from over, and banged loud as all hell against the walls. But compared to being out in it, Sounds coming from outside may as well have been a hundred miles away. Harry collapsed on the nearest fold-out bed, noting with a certain satisfaction that his father could manage nothing more than that either. Ramsay, obviously tired but seemingly more robust in this environment than his charges, lit the gas furnace and produced three cups of self-heating coffee from the cabinet. If he could have, Harry would have fathered this coffee's babies. Having settled in, Ramsay was now visibly relieved. Harry noticed his rough hands, wondered what they were used to. Man, fuck that mess. How exactly did we get onto an icebreaker that's, you know, breaking the ice around it? Harpoon. We make it work. And then you head back here in the dark? Not my first rodeo. How many others have you brought out like this? We get hot steppers from time to time. How many make it? No, no. Not my problem anymore. Well, I appreciate you doing your duty. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. It's cold as shit, too. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't over yet. But Harry was beginning to think that they may just survive this leg of the journey. Where that put their eventual demise on his mental continuum of doom it was impossible to say. Transmission begin. Eight minutes, 46 seconds. Efren recommission. Power up 105. Status report. Orbit uniform since last transmission. When age fell upon the world and wonder went out of the minds of men, 
When gray cities reared to smoky skies, tall towers grim and ugly, in whose shadow none might dream of the sun or of the spring's flowering meads, when learning stripped earth of her mantle of beauty, and poets sang no more save of twisted phantoms seen with bleared and inward-looking eyes. When these things had come to pass and childish hopes had gone away forever, there was a man who traveled out of life on a quest into spaces whither the world's dreams had fled. Decommission power down in 60 seconds. Transmission end 8 minutes 47 seconds. You've been listening to the naive theater of the air performance of Rewired, featuring Ed Rogers as Dr. Waylon Lilly, Ivan Dillard as Ramsey Tubman, Reed Perry as Lars, Levi Ray as Harry, Derek Davis as Dr. James Barrett, Petra Wright as Dr. Gabriella Neidhart, and Janice McCall as the voice of the satellite, written and narrated by Matthew Broyles. Theme music by Paul Shapira. I'm Little Jack Melody. Tune in next time for Episode 6, Gone Fishing.